I'm telling you right now, when I was a kid, we'd go to my grandparents' place. It was like there was a big flashing neon light on the door, even though it wasn't there. We knew. You don't go into grandma and grandpa's bedroom. Off limits. Stay out. Keep out. Trespassers will be shot. (laughs) My uncle had a little bachelor pad close to their place. I mean, on the same property. The blinds were always closed and the door was always locked. That meant do not enter. Stay out. My dad in his office made it absolutely 100% crystal clear that his desk was not a place to explore to try to find things. Keep your little paws out. My mom said her jewelry box is not a toy. Do not open it and do not go into it. As I got older... There were places that my mom and dad didn't want us to go. Obviously, uh, being surrounded by three major hippie communes in our small community, they really didn't like us going and hanging out at the hippie commune with the hippies. They were naked. (laughs) Not a place for young junior high boys to be hanging out. Plus, they were smoking stuff and doing stuff. And we didn't want, they didn't want us there. There was also kind of like, it wasn't really said, thou shalt not, but it was more of, you probably really shouldn't, which meant to us it was like, but go ahead and do it anyway. That's the way we translated it, because we had this, this abandoned sawmill about a quarter mile behind our house. And so me and my brothers, we'd go back there on, on a number of occasions, like all the time. They had a little pond that had, you know, where they would have the logs in the pond, and they still had logs chained up, and we'd run across those things. Um, if we really got adventuresome, we'd put on our really old, heavy um, army surplus jackets my dad got for us. We'd put on a beanie and some goggles, and we'd go to the sawmill with our BB guns and play war. We'd also, my mom and dad really got mad at us when we were having war games in the cemetery. <laughs> I don't get it. I thought it was okay. They're just dead people. What's the big deal? But apparently that was out of bounds as well. My dad wasn't really fond of us boys going into the church on a rainy Saturday afternoon with tennis balls and playing ball tag in the sanctuary. I don't know. I just thought he was kind of like poo-poo and everything. I did say that on Resurrection Sunday, by the way, poo-poo. So it wasn't a good idea to do that. But you know... If you go back into uh, Bible times, particularly Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament, there were places that the little Jewish children were absolutely forbidden to go to. First one, you never go into the temple. And if you do somehow, by chance, find yourself into the holy place, do not go behind the curtain into the holy of holies. Because if you go behind that curtain, God will strike you dead. And it's true. The high priest was allowed back there one time during the year on the Day of Atonement where he would put blood on the mercy seat of God for the sins of the nation. One time the whole year. So little kids, don't go and play up at the temple because you'll be tempted to go and see peek behind the curtain and you will drop dead. Number one place, Jewish children weren't allowed to play. The second place they weren't allowed to play was at the cemetery. Now their cemetery is much different than ours. It wasn't green grass where you can take your chipper and driver and hit golf balls off of nice nice grass. It was a place where 
where these little holes were carved into the stone. It was called a tomb. And it, was, it wasn't very big. Might have, might have been about as big as this little part of the platform I'm standing on. Just a, a hole carved in. And inside of there, there would have been a bench. And in on that bench is where when somebody died, they'd wrap them in their burial garments, clothing, and put them in on that little bench. And then they would, mold, they would roll a stone or something across it to seal it off so wild animals couldn't get in there and eat up the stinky, dying flesh. But after a year or so, the family would come back to the tomb and they would gather up all the bones of this dead person. They would bind them up. They put them into either a big sack or a box. They would anoint them with oil and wine. And then they would go to the corner of the tomb and they would start stacking the dead bones of the family there. That's why it was called a family tomb. It wasn't a one-shot deal. It's like us where we bury one guy in one spot. The family would use this. And so, you know, grandpa's off the ledge and stacked in a box here. Then there's grandma and then there's Uncle Bob and Uncle Billy. And they're all stacked in there. But the problem is, is if the Jewish children went in there and found one of the little tombs opened up and crawled inside of there, according to the law of Moses, he is then defiled. And then the parents are defiled because they had to go get Junior out of the tomb. And then there's a seven-day of purification that they have to go through, and they can't hang around with community, and they can't go into the temple, and they can't do all the worship stuff. And so it was like, you just don't go there because it's a real pain in the neck to have to go through the purification because you've touched a place where there was a dead body. So don't play in the cemetery. The other place that... Jewish people didn't go. It was a place called Golgotha. The place of the skull. And that's where Romans carried out their executions on a regular basis. And their executions, their favorite means of executing somebody was a crucifixion because it was excruciating, painful. It was torturous. And and it it just humiliated the, the individual that was being crucified. And and so it wasn't a great place. It wasn't a, a fun event for the family to go to. It was absolutely horrifying. And so the parents are going like, don't go up there because you're going to have nightmares for the rest of your life. You're going to have bad dreams. And so don't go up there. We're not going to go up there. Nobody goes up there. But you know what? Golgotha, the place of the skull, that's exactly where we find Jesus. Hanging on a cross. And it's an amazing story because in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, it says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to help you understand this because the sixth hour was high noon. High noon is when the zenith, the sun is at its full zenith and it's at its full heat, full brightness. And this is in Israel. And so it's warm and it's a sunny day and there's Jesus on the cross. But all of a sudden, the entire place goes dark. It's black. I'm not talking like if you were out this morning at about quarter to 7 or 6.30 where you could see a little bit because dawn was coming, the sun was rising. 
I'm not talking about when the sun has gone behind the hills and it's dusk and you can kind of make things out. I'm talking about absolutely pitch black. The sun did not, did not shine. Darkness over the whole land. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said this, The sun never saw such wickedness as this before and therefore withdrew. Jerome, the Latin theologian and Bible translator of the late 3rd century, his thoughts on this were that the sun retracted its rays lest it might seem to be weighing down the Lord. But the real thing is this, the, the eclipse, the total darkness, was God's judgment. If you think back to the exodus out of Egypt, God covered all of Egypt in total darkness because it was judgment. And here we have now the whole land covered in in utter darkness and the whole thing is just covered. The sun has set the mood for the most decisive moment in world history. The world's outer darkness corresponds with Jesus' inner darkness. Because that's what he does. At the ninth hour, Jesus cries with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? After three hours of darkness and probably silence, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus cried out asking the Father, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that at that very time that Jesus cried out, at 3 p.m., PM is when they would lead that little sacrificial lamb into the temple to have its blood spilled for the nation at 3 p.m. when Jesus cries out and asks why God has forsaken him. We think a lot of this stuff is just coincidental. It's not. It's not coincidence. It is absolutely God's plan to send a message to us And, and we have the light of the world, Jesus, because in, first, in, the, in the first chapter of John, it says that the word spoke all of creation into existence. Jesus is called the light of the world. And now the light of the world is opened his mouth, the final moments of darkness, as he's about ready to make his sacrifice on our behalf. In chapter or in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and it says, yielded up his spirit. What does it mean to yield up your spirit? I want you to understand this. I want you to get the picture on this. Jesus' life was not taken from him. When it says yielded up, it means Jesus voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father, and he gave his life. He gave it. It wasn't taken from him. He made a move on our behalf. He gave himself, first of all, foremost, for the glory of the Father, and then for you and for me. Jesus gave all of his life for us. All the requirements of the law were fulfilled at that moment. The penalty of and the debt of sin was completely paid in full. There was no more to be asked for because this sacrifice was 100% pleasing to God. The question you're asking yourselves is, how do we really know that it was pleasing to God? How do we know that it was enough? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. 
because I want to show you something that's, that's going to help us to understand what God is doing, what, what the Father is up to, because Matthew here gives us an account of Jesus' death, and he identifies three signs or supernatural events that God the Father, through the Spirit, shows us that he has vindication and victory over death, sin, and shame. And that's starting with verse 51 through 54, and it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this is the Son of God. The first supernatural sign we're going to look at is the ripping, the renting, the tearing of the curtain in the temple. Skeptics like to say, well, that was what a man did. No, it wasn't vandalism. Because this, this is a, a hand-woven, gigantic tapestry that is at minimum six inches thick. A piece of material that thick. There, there's no man that can grab a hold of that and rip it. And, and the, the indication and the, the place where we come to understand that it was God who was involved in this, the clue that he's giving to us is that it was ripped from top to bottom. God is sending a message of grand magnitude. And, and, and it wasn't vandalism by man. History indicates that it took about a hundred men to lift that veil, that curtain, and to put it in place to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. It was heavy. It was big. It was cumbersome. And yet here it is ripped from top to bottom, split completely. And and there are two truths that I want you to see out of this. First, it signifies judgment. In other words, it's all over. No more has to be done. There is no other place and no other reason for offering another blood sacrifice on the mercy seat of God behind the veil because the blood of Jesus that was offered, it was offered on the real mercy seat of God and it was accepted, paid in full. The second thing that we get out of this is that it's all open. There is now an open door into the throne room of God for every person who would come to faith through Christ. The moment after Jesus breathes his last breath, the temple in Jerusalem becomes a desolate building. There's nobody there. And there's no reason to go there again. There is no more need for an earthly high priest, a mercy seat, a sprinkling of blood, of incense, of a day of atonement. Jesus' death brought final judgment to the temple. It's all over. God has left the house and will live in the hearts and the lives of men and women who believe in Jesus as their Savior. And while Jesus is closing one door with his death, he opens another. Now through Jesus and him alone, the whole world is invited to enter into the presence of God. It's all open. There are no more demanding restrictions. 
There's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. The hearts of men and women who believe in Jesus, it is all open to them. Ephesians, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians church, and and it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You get that? We were far off. We were nowhere close. And because of the blood of Jesus, boom! We're close now, super close, right here close. That's amazing. Now all people, Jew, Gentile, clergy, laity, old, young, rich, poor, male, female, all have access and direct access to God the Father. In Romans 5, it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've obtained access by faith because of Jesus. And we rejoice in the hope we have in God because of Jesus. The author of the letter to the Hebrews said this in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's the irony in all this. It is through Jesus' momentary separation from the Father that the world has been granted presence through faith in Jesus Christ and eternal access to God. That's a beautiful lesson of the divine act of God by splitting the curtain. He's saying God no longer lives in the house. He lives in the hearts and the lives of those who follow him. The second supernatural sign, according to Matthew, is the earth shook. Before Jesus' death, it went dark. It went real dark. After he died, the earth shakes. The earth is telling earthlings that there is some seismic event happening. The sun hides its face, but the earth shakes its feet and teaches us to see and hear that the earth is being ushered into a new era through the death of Christ. Here we have creation making known to the world that the creator has died. Creation recognized its creator. And it's letting us know that the creator has now died. It's making a statement. It's responding to her maker dying. The shaking was so substantial that the rocks split and the tombs opened. That's what it says in the next portion there. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So the third supernatural sign is that the dead saints came back to life because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, get get this. Walking down 
town, Jerusalem. You come around the corner, and there's Uncle Bob. You go, Uncle Bob, you're dead. And he's going, dude, I'm not dead. Look at me. Pinch me. Hold me. Smell my breath. Dead breath. And, and it's like, how did you come back to life? What in the world happened? It, 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 it's just this craziness because people are seeing their parents that they've buried. They're seeing their siblings. They're seeing their aunts and uncles and their friends. Some people are seeing their children that were dead and now they're alive and they're walking around the holy city. It's got to blow their minds. It's like, this is craziness. Here's what we don't know. We don't know how many came to life. We don't know how long they lived. We don't know what age they were when they came back to life. We don't know if, if they came back to life when they were at their healthiest and strongest. We don't know any of that. We don't know how long they lived for afterwards. We just don't know that. And Matthew fails to satisfy our curiosity on that. But he doesn't care. Because he's got only one point to make. He says more by saying less. His point is this. Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. The dead are revived by his dying. As he passes from life to death, they pass from death to life. That's the, me- that's the gospel message. Because Jesus died, we live. I like that one. That works for me. Because I want to live. Beyond this life here, living and breathing this air, I want to live. And I know that when I live then, I will really live. Not as a, a man bound, but as a man who is free. And the reason that this death brought life is because Jesus didn't stay dead. Death, I mean life to death to life. Wow. We just get to go in the same direction. We're alive. We're going to die, but we're going to be alive. Jesus paved the way. He made it all happen. So now this is where some of you who were here earlier this morning and heard John speak, you go like, wait a minute, I already heard that. Well, hang on, because I think God's got something really important to say to you. So we're in Matthew 28, 1 through 4, and it says, Now after the Sabbath toward, okay, the Sabbath is Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day, that's today, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, these two women, Mary and Mary, it's kind of like, hi, my name's Sue, and this is my sister Mary and my other sister Mary. (laughs) So here they are. These two women were there when Jesus' body was taken off the cross. It was quickly wrapped up in some kind of, of 
grave clothing. It was quickly hauled off to Joseph of Arimathea's brand new tomb. Not a family tomb yet because nobody had been buried in it. They put into the tomb. Then the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the the religious leaders go, they're going to steal the body and make it look like he was resurrected. So we want you to roll a big stone in front of it that nobody can move. And then we want you to post guards around it. That way nobody can steal the body. They shot themselves in the foot because now they have four guards that can't explain how the body disappeared. Oops. They just helped it to be more real. But here's what happens. Here's these two ladies. Now they're, you can imagine them. They're, they're absolutely hopeless. They've lost all of everything they were ever dreaming for. Jesus was their spiritual leader. It was late. They didn't take any burial spices on Friday. And so now you can imagine that they've had these two sleepless nights waiting for the Sabbath to be over so that they can go down to the tomb and give Jesus a proper burial with all the burial spices. That's the least we can do for Jesus. And yet, I'm sure that as they're walking in the darkness of the morning, pre-dawn, that in the darkness, there was a darkness in their soul. They were absolutely devastated. They were absolutely beyond, it was beyond their comprehension to think what they're going to do now because Jesus is our spiritual guide, our spiritual leader, our teacher. He taught us more about God in one day than anybody's ever taught us in our lifetime. And so what are we going to do now? How are we going to deal with this thing? We don't know what's going to happen. Little did they know know what was waiting for them at the tomb. At the tomb, we get a picture of the awesome power of God as described by Matthew. Matthew says, behold. It's not kind of like, behold. It's kind of like, behold. (laughs) Behold. Yeah, I mean, we're supposed to go like, okay. That's a behold word. That means like, wake up and pay attention. And, And it says, there was a great earthquake. Not an earthquake. Not a little tremble. A great earthquake. And what we need to think about is what caused the great earthquake? Well, it says right there in the text, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Who caused the earthquake? The angel. I mean, if there's anyone I would like to be in this story, it's this angel. Because he came from heaven to earth. And when his foot touched the ground, the earth shook. It was an earthquake. It was a great earthquake by this angel's foot touching the ground. It isn't like Iron Man when he lands on the ground. Okay, that was more like a marshmallow than anything. But This angel just stepped. I mean, he came down and he boom, boom, it shook. And it's crazy. I mean... Here it is because he's coming with the greatest message ever. He is coming to help the disciples remember that Jesus said this was going to happen and he would be raised from the dead. It is the announcement of all announcements. And it comes with the power and authority of God Almighty. Now, okay, 
I'm going to use a little holy imagination here. You won't find this in any of the Gospels. So don't look it up and send me an email and go, the Bible never said that. Okay? Here's what I imagine. I imagine God the Father in his throne room. And he has his two captain angels. Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel. In there, in the throne room. They're always in there. And God the Father looks at these two captains. He says, boys, go tell Simeon that it's time. And they go, okay. And so Michael and Gabriel, they make their way down to the workout center for the angels. And they walk in the door. And they go, hey, Simeon. Yeah. The Father says it's time. Okay. He's been waiting for this for a long time. His buddies, 30 years ago, 33 years ago, they went to these little shepherds and they made the announcement. Today, in the city of David, Christ the Lord, the Savior, is born. Hey, they got to make that announcement. He didn't go on that trip. He got this little assignment. And so now he's been waiting for quite a while for this assignment to come to fruition. And so he gets to go down and as fast as lightning, he shows up. And when his foot touches the earth, there's lightning. The soldiers look up. The blood drains out of their face, flat on their face as they go. They're out cold. He walks up to the stone that's rolled in front of the tomb. He puts his hand on it and he gives it a push and it rolls away just like rolling a ball on the floor. And now what does he do? He says, I'm sitting on the rock and I'm going to wait for those ladies to show up. So he's up there kicking back, got a leg up. He's doing the cool stuff, right? I mean, because he's done his job. He's now just waiting because he's got this announcement that he's going to make to these ladies. He's going to tell them the greatest news that they've ever heard. Look what it says, verses 5 through 8. The angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he was raised from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to the disciples. Now, this is the greatest narrative of all literature in the whole world. On Friday, God died like a man. On Sunday, the man was raised to be God with splendor and glory. And in that, we have this little narrative of these two faithful servants of Jesus showing up. You know, it's the, every time there's an encounter with an angel in the Bible, there is always fear. And, And that's why just about every time the angel says, fear not or don't be afraid. So here's the deal. If you encounter an angel and they don't say fear not, keep shaking in your boots because the wrath of God is coming. Seriously. An angel comes and doesn't say fear not. You better go like, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, help me, help me, help me. 
Because there is something coming that you don't want to be a part of. Here's what he says. He gives them the best news they could ever have. He's there for these women. He's there to, to give them hope. They walked to that tomb absolutely hopeless. And he's sitting there waiting because he knows that he's going to turn their hopelessness into joy. He's got a big old grin on his face and his face and he's just going like, hurry up and get here already. What do you have to do, your hair? And there he says it. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. Jesus told them that. Jesus told them. He said to his disciples, I am going to be put to death. I am going to die. But on the third day, I am going to rise out of the grave to life. He told them. They all forgot it. I mean, that's just as bad as me going to the grocery store and having to call my wife and say, Three minutes ago, you told me to pick something up at the store. What would you tell me? Okay, it, this is the greatest news. The second thing that the angel says here is come and see. Come and see. Stick your head in the tomb. See with your own eyes that he is not here. Here's what I want you to get. Is the stone was not moved, rolled out of the way so Jesus could get out. It's so the women, the eyewitnesses could get in. Because that tomb could not hold him. It didn't matter if there was a stone on there. Jesus was long gone before that stone got rolled away. What we don't know, because nobody was there, we didn't have any little GoPros set up inside that thing to to videotape it, but it would have been spectacular to see that body come just beaming alive with light and glory and just burst through that would have been like, wow. And then he's gone. But the rock is still in front of the door. And so the angel moved it so that these eyewitnesses could stick their head and they could go like, there's the grave clothes, there's the face cloth, there's all this stuff that we wrap. He was wrapped. And he's gone. It's real. You see, the angel could have left the rock and go, take my word for it. He's not here. Believe me when I tell you. That doesn't help a whole lot. But when you see with your own eyes, when you get to view at this thing and you get to see right there that Jesus is not there, all of a sudden it's like, boom, it hits the heart and they come alive. So the third thing is he says, go and tell, quickly go and tell. They're to go back and tell the disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead and that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. Galilee. You know what? This is still the message. John said it today. This is still the message. Do not fear. Come and see. Go and tell. Are you afraid? I mean, because the Bible tells us that perfect perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. So when when we come to, to Jesus to come and see, it drives away that fear. We no longer have fear of anything. There are some people that are the fear of religion. 
And I understand that because there are a lot of religious places out there. And what they do is they bring religious regulations and they lay them down on people. And it becomes legalism in their lives. And you die under the the burden of religious legalism. And there is no life, there is no freedom, and there is no joy. And Jesus said, I want none of that religious stuff. What I want is a relationship. That's why he said to the women, go and tell the disciples, we're all going to get together and we're going to have a great time in Galilee. I'm going to meet you there, so go. Go and tell them. And so these women, they're going like, okay. Now I want you to look how they respond to the message. They depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and run to tell the disciples. It's a natural response to have fear and great joy. That happens. I remember when I was standing in front of the church on my wedding day because I had fear and great joy. I was afraid. I had fear because I thought to myself, what does it mean to be a husband? How do you be one when you've never been one? What does it mean to be the spiritual leader of my home? One day I'm going to have children with this woman that I'm marrying. How do you become a good dad? So those thoughts are racing through my mind, but that's the fear. But the great joy is I look at the back of the church and in all of her splendor and in all of her glory, my wife is coming down in her wedding gown and I'm going, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because there's my best friend. There's my true love. And we're going to be united and we're going to think we're going to figure this life out together for the rest of our lives. And there was great joy. So you can't have fear with great joy. And it's okay. It's okay to have that. These ladies, they had that mixed emotion. And it tells us it's okay because we come to Jesus at times and we have this fear in our hearts that what if Jesus isn't listening? What if Jesus doesn't care? What if Jesus doesn't forgive? What if Jesus doesn't help? But then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and that fear dissipates and our our hearts are filled with great joy. Their fear kind of drove them, but their great joy, and it was great joy, not some joy, not fleeting joy, but great joy. It was their great joy that pushed them on to do the mission of go and tell. And when we do the mission God calls us to do, he, there are always lavish rewards when we follow up on the mission. And these ladies were no exception. Look what happened, verses 9 through 10. And behold, 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 Jesus met them and said, greetings. Let's stop right there. When you came to church, we really didn't go, greetings and salutations. It sounds just a wee bit too formal, does it not? So I really want you to understand what Jesus said to these ladies. Good morning, ladies. Right? Biggest surprise of their life. They know the angel just said he was risen from the grave. And now because of their following through in obedience to go and tell, Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm right here. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said, don't be afraid. Again, Jesus says it. I'm the resurrected king. 
I am the God of the universe. Here I am in flesh. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and we'll see them there. Jesus rewards these two faithful followers. Not They were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb, but they were also the first to, to see the resurrected Savior. That was the reward God gave them. And look what they did with this honor of being able to see him in all of his glory. After he said greetings. They came up, they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Jesus expressed his humanity to them by saying, Hey, ladies, I'm right here. Good morning. And they grabbed hold of his human feet, and they worshipped him as God. That's our posture that we need when we come to worship. We need to remember that Jesus walked on this planet. He went where we went. He dealt with the things we have to deal with. He had heartache like we have heartache. And yet in all of his life, he didn't sin one time. He lived a perfect life. He gave himself up for the the glory of the Father and for our salvation. And Jesus has told us that there is so much more to this life in Christ then salvation, salvation's the tip of the iceberg. There's much more for us because in Luke 24, in Luke's account of what happened after the resurrection, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That is the more to salvation. We have the go and tell is repentance and forgiveness. That's the go and tell. You see, that's the message of Easter. It's, It's because Christ gave himself on the cross. He was buried and and raised on the third day that we have repentance and forgiveness that means something. And out of that, we go and tell. Some of you, because I don't know everyone here, but I just know that there are people who have heard this message or this story about the resurrection of Jesus. And, and maybe they've thought it through and said, well, that's really interesting. Or how do you know it's true? Or how do you believe? Or what does that look like? What does that mean? And we've, they just wonder, what does this faith in Christ look like? How does it become reality in my life? Well, Jesus laid it out right here. He said it's through repentance and forgiveness. So how do you get that repentance and forgiveness? Well, Paul really made it simple for us. In Romans 10, he says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, I don't want I don't want to, maybe I do. I was going to say, I don't really want to stir the pot and get somebody mad at me, but maybe I do. 
maybe this is a, a holy thing from God. Because so often, and I'm guilty of this, and so I'm confessing my sin, what I really believe to be a sin against God. Is it an event like this where we have people coming in because it's Easter and they want to hear the story of Easter and they go like, well, you know, this is one of the two big Sundays in the calendar year, so I should go to church. And so they come and they hear the message. And then somewhere along the line, there's a prayer. Maybe it's flashed on the screen. Maybe it's written on a card. And it's a prayer that people pray so that they receive Jesus into the life for the forgiveness of sin. And so we have people pray this prayer. But I don't find a prayer like that anywhere written in scriptures. There's not a prayer. I mean, the prayer that we're taught is our Father who art in heaven. And so I'm not asking you to pray. If, you, if you've not come into faith with Christ, I'm not asking you to pray. But I'm asking you is after what you have heard in the reality of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and what he did through the resurrection for you is that he, he's taking you from death to life if that's the reality and you're hearing it and you're going, yeah, well, that is the confession. You need to make that confession of your mouth. And then you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because the Bible says, then you are saved. It's that simple. So that's the question this morning. Where is your hope? Where's your hope? Is the hope in your good deeds, your hope in what you think you've accomplished, is your hope that someday you hope you'll be good enough for God? Is your hope that maybe that once you go into the dirt, that's it, there's no more, there's no life, there's no death, it's just I I just quit existing. There's nothing left. There's just a poof. Nobody even knew I existed except for a headstone in the cemetery. And one day that'll fall and be all rotten away. If that's, that's, your, that's not hope. That's not a plan. That's like, oh, well, why, why carry on then? And so my, I just simply this morning, because Jesus has made such a great promise to you, to me, to all of us. And he said this, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Take your yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, here's the problem of life. It doesn't get any easier. It gets more complicated and complex and difficult. And Jesus knows that. And that's why this This day is so monumental in our lives because now we live with hope. Hope for a better life for myself. God's going to do something to make me the person I've always wanted to be. I have hope for my marriage. I have hope for my children. I have hope for the future. I have hope to live. And I have hope for a purpose. That's what God's calling us to. That's what the resurrection is all about. Eternal hope. For us. Amen? Amen. You know, I'm not asking you to pray. I told you I wasn't going to do that, and I'm not going to lie. But if if you're going like, you know what? Today for the first time, I believe God raised Jesus from the dead, and I believe he is my Savior. At the end of the service, there's going to be a couple guys at the back, and they've got a Bible. We want you to have, we want you to take that with you. And so if, if that was your confession today, your confession... 
your confession by your mouth is just going and getting the Bible and going, yep, I put my faith in Jesus today. Boom. You get the Bible and take it home and start reading God's love letter to you. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, it is uh, truly amazing the whole process of this event that you have laid before us. It looked from outside that Jesus was hauled away by evil, wicked men who were going to take his life from him. But in the grand scheme of things, Jesus gave his life for us. And then through great power, he was resurrected on the third day. And that's what we celebrate. Because of his death, we have life. And so we thank you for your love and your graciousness to us and your extending love and mercy and forgiveness. And we accept all of it because you provided it to us at a great cost. We pray in Jesus' great name.